You are listening to the Archery Maniacs Podcast. This is Remy Warren. I am Rihanna Carey. My name is Adam Foss. This is Paul Tetford, professional archer. Hey everyone, I'm Christy Titus, and you are listening to Archery Maniacs. We cover everything archery, from the hunting side to the tournament side, with stories, tips and tactics, gear reviews, and more. That helped my tuning game so much when I made sure that all my arrows were square. And I'm just staring into his eyes. Blood's dripping off of its tines. Mud is everywhere. The clarity these mavens offer is amazing. I'm just like Spider-Man, you know, on this rock. You know, just <laughs> laying there. Belly crawling in there and I can barely fit in there and I can hear the cat growling at me. So I put my hand on his shoulder and pushed him and we just ran at this elephant. In this episode, I have Randy Peck on the podcast. I was fortunate enough to go down to New Mexico with pure hunting and be able to film Randy on one of his first elk hunts. Uh, He had been on a few others and shot one other bull in Canada. And uh, so this was the second bull that he was, that he shot with his bow. And it was just a ton of fun to be there, experience it capture it all on film and everything along those lines. In this episode, Randy dives into some of the ins and outs of being a new bow hunter for elk, some of the things that he learned, and a bunch of other things that might help new elk hunters out there. Quick side note, we did record this in the vehicle on the way back to the airport from the hunt, so there is some background noise. I apologize for that in advance. I hope you enjoy the show. Buddy, Zach Harold here. A new friend of mine, Randy Peck. We uh, we met through Willie Smith of Pure Hunting. I came to New Mexico to, Mexico to film him on the elk hunt, and man, what an experience we have had! Um, before we dive into that experience, Randy, why don't you just kind of tell everybody a little bit about yourself and kind of talk about some of the prior experiences of elk hunting that you were like, man, hell with this shit. <laughs> <laughs> well. I come from Texas, so of course we don't have elk in Texas. So, and I've western game hunt now for the last eight or ten years, and I've tried elk hunting once or twice, and they weren't bugling, so it was more of a spot stock deal, and it was, just wasn't the same as what we experienced down here in New Mexico. Um, so, I bow hunted now for the last 12, 15 years, seriously, hadn't picked up a rifle in a long time. And uh, so me and Willie got together this last summer and decided to maybe film this hunt by myself, which I'd done five other shows with Willie, but he was always there. Yeah, that makes a big difference. It made a big difference. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I didn't have to stutter through the scenes. (laughs) Oh, you did fine. (laughs) So, you know, so coming out here, this was actually supposed to be my first elk hunt when me and Willie first talked about this. And I was going to go hunt mule deer in Alberta anyway, so I sort of slipped in an elk hunt in front of him. And uh, on that elk hunt, well, let me back up. The first couple of elk hunts I went on, one was in Colorado. That's all right. No worries. It was just a quick little hunt, a five-day hunt. I got my first experience of two hunters and one guide which right off the bat means you're only hunting half the time instead of all the time. Uh-huh. So from that experience, I didn't do that anymore. Right. Which the guy that I was with, <laughs> he killed an elk and I didn't. So I learned the difference between a one-on-one and two-on-one. 
<laughs> the hard way. And then we've gone to Oregon to hunt out a couple of times, and uh, it was just always too early in the year. They weren't bugling, and we were just trying to basically intercept them between bedding areas and, and feeding areas. Gotcha, yeah. And, uh, and it was little thicker spots and just you know how the winds I, I, that's where I had to learn about updrafts and downdrafts and how to stalk and how to play the mountains so yeah when you that that's a huge thing that people don't realize or take into consideration especially when you don't have to deal with it you know the thermals good lord they will kick you where it counts and keep kicking you until you <laughs> yeah well being from Texas I've never worried about a thermal <laughs> come on you guys got some skyscrapers and mountains there <laughs> uh, you know it's basically flat the wind's blowing one way or the other way and that's about it directional yeah right you know so and then going to Alberta Alberta was farmland so and then we had strips of timber in between the farmland mostly and there were some creek beds and stuff you go river beds you could go in there and hunt which is a little bit different there but basically we'd try to spot the elk in the fields and as they were going back to bedding we was trying to call them in and and sort of hunt them like that and I was fortunate enough to kill one there and what we did there was we basically just took off walking through a strip of timber and we're cow call or maybe slightly bugle every 30 to 60 steps depending on how much noise we was making and that was a big learning experience for me because I've always walked through the woods ultra quiet hunting as quiet white as you, can. Yeah. you know just as quiet as you could and we were making all kinds of noise because it was nothing but <laughs> downfall everywhere boom crash bang and, shit, there they go <laughs> and here I'm from Texas and luckily I didn't insert mouth foot in mouth and say this shit ain't never gonna work <laughs> because before I knew it we done walked right up within 20 yards on a, a doe and a, a calf and a cow and a calf yeah and uh, then I thought well maybe this has a chance so we walked a little bit farther and all of a sudden we did it again and then we actually walked up on my bull he never made a sound we just, he actually just took one step and broke a stick and we looked over there and he was just standing there at 37 yards and uh, it was in some thicker timber so he figured he was hidden and uh, I was fortunate enough to place an arrow in him and, and harvested him and it was a different experience. We had talked about when I went in there that you're not going to have 100% just see the whole elk type of shot. You're going to see hopefully see the vitals and that may be all you get to see mm -hmm. and especially that thick stuff and then that thick stuff and i actually shot that elk between two trees and with the limb going across the higher part of his lung so i went through the two trees underneath the stick and fortunately made a good shot and basically what you're saying is it looks exactly like one of the damn targets that the total archery challenge sets up <laughs> yeah you know and and those kind of deals are great you know and for 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 learning how and practicing on on real life situations yeah and uh and then we get up here and i think we talked uh yesterday we actually called in 
16 different bulls in two days. Or more, or more, or honestly. More. I mean, yeah. it, some of them, they came in so quick or silent that it was all of a sudden, there's an elk and there they go. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we, we both experienced quite a bit different here. Um, I'd never experienced bulls just running at us. I mean, the first one that come running at us, he, we were going up a hill, he come over a hill, and me being from Texas and still being the rookie here, this bull comes bugling over the hill and y'all y'all hit the ground like we're being shot at. <laughs> and, but not just bugling over the hill, I mean, before we could even see him, he goes, <laughs> and we're in 40 yards away, right away, well, holy crap, he's right there! <laughs> yeah. And we yeah. just hit the deck. And I look over and Randy's standing there looking around like, what's going on? <laughs> well, I was actually trying to knock an arrow. Yeah, but... you were. You were doing all of it. You were doing the right thing. Well, it's... I don't know if I was or not. That was the whole deal, you know. And it's for... hard to lay on your stomach and knock an arrow. Well, yeah, and shoot. <laughs> but fortunately, he was he was a little smaller than we was looking for to begin with. So it was just a cool experience. He probably stopped, what, uh, 18, 20 yards from us. Oh, man, right there. It was you know? so cool. And, uh. So that was sort of the first experience, and and then uh, learning when to draw was the next experience on elk. You know, you battle, okay, trying to get a good look at him and see if he's what you want. And it seemed like every time we got set up calling, the bulls were supposed to go to our right or to our left. Well, every one of our, well, not everyone. <laughs> Pretty damn close, though. So. <laughs> Three out of four bulls that come to mind walk dead straight at us. No ifs, ands, buts. If you can draw, just you're pinned. <laughs> you know. Literally to the point where I am four yards to the right of Randy and these elk are coming in. And I am thinking to myself, if he does not shoot this bull... It's either going to step on me or I'm going to have to move and get out of the way. <laughs> yeah, true that. Um, <laughs> and the bull, right before I shot this one, he walked within six or seven yards of us probably. And there was just no way of drawing on him. What I did learn was when you see the tips of horns coming through, if it's going to be that tight, draw and you're just gonna have to hold until you make up your mind to either shoot or not shoot or or he turns and gets right or whatever the situation may be. But And then that led us to the... Well, absolutely, and I think something with that is, you know, where it's different in whitetail hunting and things like that is you're usually in a ground blind or a stand. So you uh, get a few looks at the animal before you ever have to draw back to decide if you wanna shoot him. Right. When an elk is coming in like that, it's either cresting over a small, you know, knoll of the hill, the, you know, the edge of the hill, or right behind some brush, or thick timber, whatever else, and if you don't draw back when they're behind that, elk aren't like deer. They don't take a few steps and then pause and look at you. When they see movement, they freeze in that exact same spot. So, when you see type tips coming, if you draw back, chances are he's going to keep coming until you stop him. Right. And at that point, you're already at full draw. You Then you can, okay, he's big enough, he's not big enough. But as you experience, <laughs> they, they see that movement and they either freeze immediately or butts and dust the other way. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and 
you know, that was, I learned the hard way two or three times. You know, fortunately they was on smaller bulls, but every encounter was a, was a learning experience. The wind, how they're going to circle around us and what they're going to do and you know more about about setting up on bulls than I do, of course. Uh, but for me, it was just... Which works perfect. I mean, yeah. I'm fortunate. I live in Wyoming. I've grown up in a place where I can hunt elk. Like, that's fortunate. Yeah. Um, but it, it honestly worked out pretty well, you know? It did. I mean... Me being able to film and, and if you needed help, help, which is great. <laughs> well, and, and you was great in that aspect there was a couple times I was thinking, okay, what do we do next? <laughs> and there was a couple times you looked at me and said, I don't know. <laughs> but 90% of the time you said, okay, we need to go, we need to sit, we need to do this, we need to do that. And well, I think we made the right decisions almost every time. Yep. Uh, we just went into the, the great big bulls here in New Mexico. We was we was into lots of lots of animals though. lots of mediums yeah. <laughs> small mediums <laughs> yeah. and uh, then getting down to the to the harvest shot we was walking a ridge and Ralph likes to call I mean not call he likes to rattle quite a bit which me and you neither one had experienced that too much I don't think yeah I mean I've raked a few trees but nothing to the intensity that he does that's for sure yeah and we both have opinions on it but the fact on it is that it got the attention of a bull to begin with and that bull I don't I think the problem with that bull is he couldn't see the fight. So before he fully come in, he just sort of eased off. Uh-huh. And just as soon as we're all sort of getting relaxed and fixing to walk off, one appears 150 yards straight from us. <laughs> and everybody, okay, sit back down. <laughs> and about that time that spike come up from our right from the lower canyon and then we hear a bugle down below him knowing that there's a bigger one coming so within a blink of an eye we've got three more bulls coming in <laughs> <clears throat> and it's like okay this is what we're going to do <laughs> so and now that's where it got tricky so I've learned all my lessons I've learned that two pins in the vital you don't have to range them all the time because two pins is in the kill zone on an elk mm -hmm. and Try to draw before they pin you, and all that. Well, that all come in real handy, except for this damn bull. Instead of going around like the spike was doing, he got a little more aggressive, and of course he comes straight at us. <laughs> and he turns straight at us, and he's coming at a decent clip. I'm thinking, oh shit, I'm gonna screw another one up. <laughs> Cause I didn't draw. But how was I supposed to draw? He was coming out from my left to my right. And then all of a sudden he turns and instead of going to the horn, he comes straight at us. So he come probably 30 yards and he just so happened to, there was a 
tree there just big enough that I thought I could draw by the time he got by it. Well, I didn't get completely drawn. And he spooked a little bit and jumped and fortunately he only jumped 10 yards before he turned around and looked back at us. And when he did, I didn't have time to range, of course, but I was able, that to, trick. I was able to put two pins in him and I knew he was about 20, 25 yards anyway. So I put the 30 yard pin on his heart let her rip. Yeah, and the rest is coming up in next season's pier hunting. Right. Um, so you guys will definitely have to stay tuned for that and be ready to check that out. Uh, but you know, there obviously there were some other learning curves along the way, you know. Uh, basically, Using, utilizing the collar behind you, but knowing when to keep pushing forward and when to stay back, you know? Yeah, that was something... I think that was probably the most difficult thing to learn, honestly. Yeah, and it took us a full day just to figure out... And not, I guess not even learn. That's not really the right way. It's not no. learn. It's doing what that specific collar wants you to do. It's probably the best way to, to, to describe it. Yeah, and it was, it was a deal. Like, the very first time or two... We got in there late. We didn't get in there till midnight. So <laughs> we and that's another story. May or may not have got lost <laughs> once or twice or five times on the way there. That, that little blue line that on the damn phone. blue line on the phone <laughs> kept changing on us, man. And I looked, I looked down that one time and we were no longer on the blue line. We hadn't been for about five, ten miles. And I said, "Oh shit, Randy, I think we're on the wrong road." <laughs> <laughs> Needless to say, we was having a good time talking. We just met each other. We was, we were just having a good time talking and not really paying the appropriate amount of attention. Us not paying attention. Anyway, come on. But uh, you know, so we got in there about midnight, and we was up at five a.m. And so we didn't really get to talk because we was gone by five thirty to get up get up in the mountains. And uh, you know. I knew that he was going to set us up. I knew he was going to drop back. But the first set, we really didn't have to do nothing because they were coming up at us and the cow saw us and they didn't like, they, they couldn't see nothing. They couldn't find where the bugling or the cow calls were coming from. So they sort of just eased on and took the bull with them. So that wasn't too big of a deal. But the next set, we're just trying to get him to call call the bull to us and we hear the bugle at the same spot all the time he wasn't coming and then you know it was okay well if that happens more than two or three times y'all ease up and i'll be watching y'all and i'll ease up with y'all well okay so we thought we had this figured out now with this particular with ralph this particular guy calling for us so the next one mind in your nature it seems to be is to be a little too aggressive <laughs> so the next one we take off a little bit harder and he's trying to keep up behind us because this bull ain't moving neither well obviously that didn't work when we found his bed and he wasn't there yeah so that was <coughs> trying to figure out how aggressive to be how not aggressive to be what cows are in your way what spikes are in your way just like that next morning I mean, we got into them. There were bulls. There was hell cows everywhere. My everywhere. Gosh. It was, I mean, it was it was a bugle fest. It really was. You can hear it, you know, in the audio of the show. It's uh, it's just it's insane. You can tell that we're literally surrounded by elk. Um, 
we had several within eight to twelve yards. Uh, but we couldn't see them. Yeah, you could barely you could make them out. You know, you'd see the color through the, and then it was just crazy. And then we had that one spike that was what fifteen yards, and he was standing there wide open looking at us. Yeah. Still in velvet. That was kind of cool. Right. <clears throat> but yeah, that was, and that was, it is as a solo hunter. Um, me being never hunting with a guide before and having someone behind me calling, as soon as I get a bull to call, that's what I do. I get then get as close as I possibly can to him, and then he calls again. I try to get closer until, you know, until I'm as close as I can get, basically, without blowing them out. Um, so that was kind of a, you know, having him, having all of us play the cat and mouse game together was kind of a, a different experience for me as well, because I've never, I've never gone on a guided hunt. <laughs> yeah. Never had someone call for me either. It's always been and me being, sucking it up on the beagle tube. <laughs> and being from Texas, I've had to utilize guides in the western states because I haven't got to hunt like y'all do. I yep, mean, yep. Now we can go back to Texas and hunt axis deer or whitetail deer or hogs and coyotes and all that. And I'm fine with all that. But it's a learning curve for me just going from Texas. Use the left to all to turn left onto US 54 West. Western style hunting. Thank you, Siri. Yeah. We're trying to figure out how to get, get We're back trying to get to the airport without getting lost five <laughs> to ten times. <laughs> but it is daylight and we can read. Yeah, so it is. We're in good shape there. Some signs we can read. Right. <laughs> but like that morning when we got into those bulls, fortunately or unfortunately, we was in some pretty thick stuff a little thicker than what we probably liked because i would imagine we had that herd bull under 50 yards two or three times but we couldn't see him yep i agree he and, was he was definitely right there and the the time that he was sort of gathering up his cows here i thought we was in really good shape and we start after him and the satellite bull comes in there and pecks us. <laughs> Asshole. Uh, you know, and he he's on a string going to going to the calling. Yeah. And I mean, he's he's going. And he's got a couple cows with him. So we sort of get by that obstacle, and then the next obstacle, we go a little bit farther. We're getting close. We're 77 yards from the herd bull again, and the spike pegs us. And then there's nothing we can do about that. I mean, we blow him. We probably blow the whole deal. We just couldn't get there fast enough with all the eyes and all the eyeballs looking at us and just... Isn't that the truth? That's that's what's, you know, one of the most challenging things about hunting herd bulls, obviously, is you go from a pair of eyes to, depending on how many cows they have, 10, 20, 30 eyes, all looking for danger. That's what they're bred to. They're bred to survive. Right. You know, they're all looking for danger. They're all smelling for danger. They're all listening for danger. And then on top of those herd bulls, you start cow calling or do a, a lot of other bugles or something along those lines. They're, they, in their mind, are thinking, well, here comes another bull to take my cow, so I'm just going to take my cows and I'm going to leave. You know, I'm safe if I leave. Right. <laughs> the, uh, even the other times that I've, I've hunted, I have noticed the herd bulls just gather the cows up and leave. So... 
I realize I've been lucky this week. I've, I've managed to kill two bulls, one in Alberta and one in New Mexico. But I've also got to be honest on the respect that the herd bull is going to be a different game from here on out. Yeah. You know, I've killed, it is 100%. I've killed the young bucks, and now I've got to go back home and, and talk to some good friends like yourself, like Willie Smith and Dan Evans, and some of these guys that hunt elk a lot. Yeah, a lot. And figure <laughs> out what it's going to take to get to the herd bulls. I think that's a whole other subject. Yeah. I think we can go to this unit and we can kill, you know, 200 to 260, 270 inch bulls all day long without too big of a problem because there's that many of them in this unit. Yep. But the herd bulls, and we got on two herd bulls, and they were both just gathering cows up and leaving whenever yeah. we were calling. I mean, it yeah. wasn't even, they weren't even thinking about it. I mean, so that's going to be my next learning curve. Uh, and every setup that we had this week was a learning curve. Uh-huh. I mean, you know, we had them come straight at us. We had them trying to circle a win. We had one that was 129 yards almost straight down below us trying to get to us. <laughs> and he circled, and he was a little bit older bull, and he got quiet on us. And that's another thing. There was three or four times we located bulls, and then they got quiet. Yeah. And and just popped up. Yep. Bam, there's an elk. Yeah. 30 yards. Yeah. So, <laughs> they were in their bedroom. I mean, they know everything that's around there, and then, then all of a sudden we show up with different types of calls and different things, and they're curious in a lot of respects, too. But it's, it's also amazing how quickly they learn, too. You know, you you bugle one in or a cow call one, what, however you get them to come in. And they come in and they either A, see that there's no elk, or B, they wind you, or C, they immediately associate whatever action you used to bring them in to, I didn't see an elk that time. Yeah. And, and it's a quick association. Yeah. And uh, as soon as that starts happening, man, it's it becomes a different ball game there too. Well, and that was one thing about hunting the early season in New Mexico. These elk hadn't been called to that we was hunting. Yeah, since last, been best year, since last year. Yeah. Uh, you know, which has probably made a big, a huge difference on, on the situation, but. Let's talk about the wind a little bit. You've obviously hunted elk a whole lot more than me. And the wind's their best friend, I felt like, after hunting them for the last week. 100%. So the, an elk lives and dies by its nose. It's it's their strongest asset for survival. Um, and you'll notice elk feed downhill in the evenings because the thermals switch and they start going downhill so they can see danger in front of them and they can smell danger coming behind them so they feed downhill in the morning as soon as those thermals swap that's why that's why you don't see elk coming uphill i mean we did a little bit but that's why you still see elk movement between seven and nine o'clock because those thermals start to switch as soon as the earth floor starts to heat up and the thermals start going uphill so the elk start going back uphill 
seeing danger in front of them, smelling danger behind them, headed to their beds. So you're exactly right. I mean, the wind is their big, their their sense of smell is their biggest survival asset by far. And the other thing that I didn't get to experience here in New Mexico, and I did in Alberta, we basically shot him right there in his bed in Alberta. But how do you hunt on? Here's my opinion. I think the big herd bulls, once you locate them, it might even be better just to sort of follow them, let them get bedded, and then just ease up in there and be ready for them to get up and start feeding. Have you experienced, and I'm trying to educate myself being from Texas and being a first year basically elk hunter, about going in there and getting a herd bull out of his bed or being in position to when he gets back up to feed in the afternoons, you're in position, or how does all that work? Yeah, so I mean, there, there's quite a few ways you can go about that situation. I mean, if especially if it's a bull that you've seen before, like anything, they have patterns. They're just a hell of a lot bigger than a whitetail's pattern. That's really the only difference. But I mean, if you if you start to watch elk, you'll notice that a big pattern that elk have is they utilize water sources, sometimes in a circular type pattern. So if you see one bull and you figure out where his water is, you can kind of start watching him take his cows from water to water to water and grazing and doing all that stuff. Now, it could be a four-day rotation. It could be a two-day rotation. So you can see them and you can get set up in front of them and hopefully they, they come to you, obviously. You can bed them, you can get in close once they're bedded, wait for them to stand up, shoot them on their way back out. You can do that as well. Uh, if you do something like that, I'd recommend trying to get as horizontal with them on the hillside as you possibly can. Because then the only way that the wind is going to mess you up is if it's a directional wind usually. I mean, it'll swirl a little bit, but usually if you're horizontal with them, it helps out quite a bit. Or you can get in close to him and basically make I'm talking to the cows talk and you know like elk sex noises and things like that and that'll get the bulls aroused and sometimes pull them out of their bed to come check you out but as I've told you a lot I'm definitely not the world's best caller uh, I spend a lot of my time elk hunting spotting and stalking much more like a mule deer hunter um, and if I could hit the damn thing once I get there, I've, I've closed the distance on four or five, three, 40 plus bulls and I've missed them. And that happens. <laughs> you know, and that happens. So, but with that kind of experience coming from doing it that way, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, all I got to do is keep my composure because I just get so jacked up. Yeah. It's not that I can't shoot. I'm up there like, hum. Oh my God, there he is, you know? Well, it happened to me yesterday. You know, I got pretty jacked up on that bull yeah. yesterday. He wasn't quite what I was looking for, but the experience was just out of this world with everything we had talked about on all the other stalks before. It all sort of happened in that one. I mean, you could take... It all came together. I mean, everything was in that one deal that I had learned the last couple of days. I mean, we had multiple bulls. We had them coming from around us, not seeing the bulls, so they eased off. One bull playing the wind, one bull being silent up on top of the hill, and then coming straight at me. But the one thing we haven't talked about, and I learned 
in Alberta and in New Mexico is shot placement. Yeah. And being from Texas, and I don't know what I was imagining, I think I was imagining more like a, a hog shield on that shoulder. Uh-huh. Because all I've ever heard is stay away from the shoulder, don't hit the shoulder on an elk. Uh-huh. You're not going to kill that elk. It's just going to wound them and all this stuff. And that's, so real quick there, if you hit the shoulder blade, I've passed through both shoulder blades. Right. You, the thin part, the scapula part. That blade, you'll pass through, but it's right where the blade comes down and turns into the solid circular, you know, cylinder bone, and it turns into that knuckle. If you hit that, kiss him goodbye. He's not even going to be hurt. Well, <laughs> but I think an important part of that is that I learned after looking at the one in Alberta. If you're hit that far forward anyway, <laughs> where that bone is, you've made a bad shot anyway. It's almost or all something's the way happened. The it's yeah, it, it's all the way, it's all the way forward. The yeah. And and both of my bulls from the crease hit two inches inside the shoulder. Mm -hmm. And when I seen that first one was actually placed there in Alberta, I thought, man, I almost really messed that up. But I, I like to. I guess as we're field dressing them or, or doing whatever to debone them to get them out of there or whatever, I like to inspect where my arrow went through the, the kill zone. And that went exactly through the heart. Yep. I mean, so that told me that their vitals are a little bit farther forward than what the, I don't know the proper word is, but the elk rumor has it of where you're supposed to shoot them. Mm -hmm. You know, because right there two inches forward from that crease is perfect heart shot i shot two bulls this week that's both right there two inches from the crease in the shoulder and neither elk went over 40 yards yeah you know and it's funny because uh john dudley um ed ashby dr ed ashby they talk about basically what they call the golden triangle or the killer's triangle or whatever you know you want to call it and that's Literally, so you go straight up the leg bone. That's the straight side of your triangle. Then you draw one almost down the shoulder bone and then back to the base, right where the bottom of the, the you know, the chest cavity hits that leg. That's your triangle right there. And if you hit anywhere in that triangle, he's going down quick. Yeah. I mean, if you hit outside the triangle a little bit, you're still gonna get both lungs. Yeah. Their lungs are giant, right. you know, but the farther forward you are, the more vitals you're going to hit better. And it's, I mean, there's a fine line too. Don't jack up and hit the shoulder, obviously. Right. And you also have to watch the way that they're standing. Because if they're standing, that shoulder bone can be positioned farther back. Right. Obviously. I mean, it's, it's going to be different every shot, but you just got to pay attention to that for sure. Yeah, and I think another thing is, is when it's all happening, it's happening fast with elk. It's not a they come to a feeder whitetail situation where they're sitting there and you got time to sort of look how he's quartered. Is he quartered to you, quartered away from you, straight parallel on the mean, side to side, or whatever the situation may be. So if he's quartered to me just slightly, and I put it two inches behind the shoulder, like on like we've always been told, I may get one lung and and a whole lot of liver and guts. a whole lot of liver. <laughs> And now instead of a, a 10 second kill, 
it's a seven hour situation. Yeah, and that's that you sucks. Know? That's never fun. So I mean, obviously, if he's quartered away from you, two inches behind the shoulders, probably perfect shot. Yep. You know, but that was a big deal for me to learn too on elk anatomy. And you know, all this what I'm doing is I've got 12 points in Arizona already. Mm-hmm. So I'm really trying to get a couple elk down get my confidence up on hunting elk for, for when I do draw that tag and I won't draw it next year because I've got a muskox hunt plan but the possible the next year after that I may be drawing an Arizona elk tag and now we're going from chasing you know we're trying to kill 350 to 400 inch bulls down there yeah you know your so. composure's a little different when they come in well <laughs> just having the confidence that Knowing where to place that arrow. Yep. You know. Absolutely. So there's been lots of learning situations for this Texas boy on on trying to hunt these elk. (laughs) I feel very fortunate, very lucky the last week, and I was real fortunate with the people I hunted with up in uh, Alberta. We talked about the kill zone before. We talked about both pins being in the kill zone. We talked about keeping tunnel vision because you might only be able to see the vitals only. Yeah. And was prepared for that. And in the thick situation, um, the wind and calling them and all that wasn't quite a factor up there like it was here in Arizona. I mean, in New Mexico. Uh huh. You know. So there's just lots of lots of stuff and uh, I probably didn't do my homework quite as much as I should now there's so many good podcasts and YouTubes and everything I got probably ought to spend a little bit more time but with that being said too how do you know who to trust and what podcast to watch you might you have a little more experience with that you know yeah and, and it seems like everybody and their dog is coming out with a podcast nowadays suggest go out and listen to a few um, and you know, give them a chance obviously uh, and if you like their stuff cool keep listening to them but I would say if you ever hear a podcast and it goes against completely say let's say they're talking about elk this is gonna make it really easy it goes completely against the stuff that Corey Jacobson is teaching Randy Olmer talks about, Donnie Drake talks about, Randy Newberg talks about. If it goes against people like that, that are icons in the industry that together have probably killed thousands of elk, literally, you might not, you might not want to listen to that podcast. Yeah. Uh, now, if it is in line, but just uh, somebody else's version of it, awesome. Because what you got to understand is, I'm going to call completely different than Randy is going to ever call. We're two very different people. It's, it, that's how it'll always be. You're always going to kind of develop your own style, find a certain call, pitch, tone, whatever else that works really well for you, and it may not work for somebody else. But things have still got to be in line with the end goal and the end thing that truly needs to be done to kill an elk. Well, and I think another big thing you sort of touched on was, and, and we talked about it earlier today, different places they hunt elk a little bit different 
wherever you're going, it would be nice to know sort of what kind of situation you're getting into. And I can only go back to what I've done the last week and maybe even a year or two ago. You know, Alberta was completely a different hunt than New Mexico. And Oregon ended up being a completely different hunt than either one of these. Because it was before the rut, they weren't bugling, it was a spot and stalk. And I think you mentioned out there in Wyoming, yours is more glass, find what elk you want, and then go after that particular elk. Yeah. And absolutely. here it was completely different. We didn't see them, we heard them, and then we got whatever come in. So each area hunts a little different. Each area is going to be different caliber bulls, uh -huh. different numbers of animals, and I think those are some important questions to to ask whoever you're going with, your guide or your friend or your buddy or whatever it is, and to be able to study that situation a little bit more because each place has been different. That's just something I've learned this last week too. You just have to adapt and go. Well, and. and and on, on top of that, too, uh, I would suggest listening to people that are talking and teaching the area of, that you're going to be hunting. Exactly. Right? So, Corey Jacobs spends, spends a ton of time hunting dark timber and hunting like that. If that's the kind of hunting you're going to do, follow him. If you're going to hunt Idaho, I would suggest looking into Paul Medell and Elk Nut Outdoor Productions. That guy is on a 30 or 40 year streak killing bulls on public land with an over-the-counter tag. Yeah. Uh, seriously, with a bow. I mean, long bows, recurves, compounds, all in there. I mean, that guy understands elk and what they're saying as good as anyone out there. You know, so really, you know, and then, and then on top of that, if you're wanting a really big bull, all those guys can teach you that stuff. But let's say you prefer spot, stock, spock, spot and stock style hunting. Well, so does one of the icons in the industry, Randy Homer. Go learn about elk hunting from him if that's how you want to hunt. If you want to do a bunch of calling, learn from people that are good at the calling. And, you know, it's how you want to do it, too. It's what, what you enjoy the most. Yeah. And it's, it's like everything else. There's a learning curve. And you just got to get out there and go. Just And the main thing is, just remember to keep it all fun. Yep. You know, I mean, when I hunted with the rifle going back 12, 13, 14 years ago now, I'd gotten to the point where I was strictly a trophy hunter, you know, basically. And with the bow, it, it changed everything. There was one year in the field, I hunted 50 days in the field, and I drew my bow back twice. Right? You know, so at that point, I had to rethink my situation. Okay, <laughs> am I really a trophy hunter? Or do I want to enjoy myself and have fun? Yeah. And yeah. so you got to find your combination. I mean, you got your Randy Elmers and your Bob Fromms that are nothing but big-time trophy hunters at this point of their career. And you got Fred Ockler that is out there having a blast. Yeah. You know, not that the other ones aren't. It's just whatever it's all you, want what to you want to yep. do. Yeah. And just yeah. the main thing is have fun. Get your kids involved. Oh man, do that. For you sure. know, 
talked about that this weekend. Oh my god, that's you know. I would I would rather have my son and my dad on a hunt and kill nothing or kill a spike with my bow with my son there watching it and, and experiencing it than shooting a 400 class bull. I would all day long. Yeah. Well, and <laughs> hunting Texas. When they can hold the rifle themselves, they can hunt. Yeah. I mean, my son was fortunate enough to to kill his first turkey at five. Right. To where your son can't legally hunt in Wyoming until he's twelve. Exactly. And exactly. That's where the Texas deal comes in. Well, we'll be coming to see you, Ray. <laughs> Don't you worry. A lot, a lot. You already told us we'd go. Right. I'm coming. Yeah, I'll no. probably be there tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get, if we don't turn around and go to Colorado. Yeah, well, we might go to Colorado. We're going. For all of you listening, we're going. But uh, My wife would probably kill both of us. Right. But as long as she kills Randy first, I think I might be a little faster. We talked about it a little too late when we changed your plane ticket. Right. Yesterday, if we'd have changed it to Denver or Colorado Springs. Well, I'm flying into Denver. Yeah. That's perfect. You just you just drive to Denver. Well, <laughs> After I drop you off in El Paso. After you drop me off in El Paso, just meet me and, you know, I'll follow you on the plane. I'll be like, oh, that's Randy. Yeah. Mark me on GPS. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Share your location with me, Randy. But, you know, getting the kids involved is a great deal, and I've set my son up to be successful because I put him in those situations from all my years of experience, and, and that way he could be successful and enjoy the hunt, had fun, now he craves it. Yep. And he loves to hunt. And he can talk about it. He's got as much experience at, as 11 years old as a lot of grown men. Yeah. You know. That's how my son is, too. Not, not in the killing side, because right. it's, it's not legal yet. Um, but as far as when to be quiet, how to stalk. I mean, I was so impressed with my kid. I, there were some geese down in the pond. And I said, buddy, why don't you go sneak up on them? See how close you can get. And he goes walking down there, crawls through the fence, and then he disappears. And I'm just thinking to myself, holy shit, I better go down there and make sure he didn't fall in or something. You know, what's going on here? So I walk down there, and I look down there, and there's there's a couple ravines, you know, with ridges. And he had crawled down into the ravine and was using that whole entire ridge to shield himself from the geese at five years old. That's impressive. Well, you, you, talk, you talk about that. Um, my first, my son's first bow kill, I was at an auction and I had, uh, I was actually trying to run the bid up for the police to get more money for the auction. I got stuck with a uh, exotic game hunt. Uh-huh. So I called Keith. And I thought, well, maybe this would be a good opportunity to get Hoyt his first animal. Yeah. So we went down there to do that. But talking about the stalking, he had some water about 150 yards from the lodge. And that way they could watch a bunch of the animals. His customers could watch the animals and everything. But Hoyt didn't want to watch them. He, every time an animal come to that water, he took off after them, stalking them. <laughs> he wanted to see how close he could get to Hell him. yeah. And he's like seven. Yeah. And it's like, Dad, can I go? And, and it's summertime in Texas. And 
and there's rattlesnakes oh, in Texas. And we, we, both, <laughs> we both hate rattlesnakes. So I was a little nervous. I yeah. said, now look, you can't crawl on your belly. You can't do nothing like that. You've got to stay upright. So it's going to be a little more difficult, but go have fun. And I think that day he stalked four or five with us <laughs> sitting there watching him from the lodge. You know, but we're fortunate. We're both in the industry, so our kids get a little more opportunities. But, you know, I just want to encourage everybody to get their kids involved and have fun and make it a family event. And mm -hmm. If it's nothing more than getting into archery and, and shooting the bow in the backyard with the whole family. Yep. You know, just anything to get the kids involved. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. So, you know, back back to our elk hunt uh, here in New Mexico what was you know because you had mentioned that you had never hunted elk like this and with this vocal and, and all of it so what was kind of kind of your biggest surprising moment or holy crap you know look at that or hear that or wow I experienced that what was kind of uh, oh man that's awesome what, what, what was kind of that for you I think the biggest deal was realizing that you're not going to have a lot of time to make the shot. It's not like hunting, and I've killed quite a few different species, but it's not like hunting a whitetail where you're sort of set up, you sort of snuck in on him, and you got a little bit of time. Uh, mule deer sort of the same way. You're, you're stalking them, and uh, hopefully you found them in their bed, and you're, you can sort of take your time. Axis, same way. Um, these elk, they're just coming in. Mm -hmm. You're not going to get to set up on them. You're going to have to take what they give you. Yeah. You're going to find them in an area that may not be perfect for stalking I yeah. mean, or setting up. You know, yeah, it'd be ideal to be right in front of a great big bush and have your collar and some really thick brush behind you <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. But, I mean, there was a couple times we were bigger than any of the trees that we were standing <laughs> in. You know? I just uh, kind of started swaying back and forth. That's it. You know? <laughs> Think a tree. Act like a tree. Be you know, the tree. And, and I am... <laughs> confidence level I guess <laughs> is knowing the distance when I release on the animal uh -huh. and with whitetail or some of the other species I hunted the first thing I did was check the range and then I was able to, to make a shot well you don't have time to range them yeah not usually you know not calling yeah you know I pre-ranged a lot of different you know landmarks around me and I knew about what they were going to be in and my pins are 10 yards apart they both fit in the kill zone so learning that you're not going to have a lot of time to range and then make the shot you've got to know that if you can judge between 10 yards you can kill that elk yeah you know and it just happens a lot faster and that was a that was a big thing for me you know and keeping tunnel vision on the vitals uh-huh it's just like what we talked about i never even really looked at these elk's horns too much i was just focused on 
his shoulder. Yeah, yeah. You know, because I actually had to shoot underneath one little limb that was on the top side of his the kill zone there. I had to make sure I, you know, was under it. Uh huh. And same thing in Alberta. You know, so it's quick judge ethical decisions in a hurry. Yeah. It is. You know, it's not like even bear. I mean, I've sat up on bear, and you, you've got time on bear. You know. Uh huh. Pronghorn <laughs> coming to water. You know how far they are when they come to the water. I mean, most all species, you've got a little bit more time to range, but elk, you don't. And that was a hard habit for me to to break. I mean. The first couple of times that they come in, I was like standing there. <laughs> you know, I was looking for a time where I was gonna get to range him. Yep. You know, much less draw. And then by that time you range him, you look down and go, okay. And by that time he's ten yards in a different spot. Yeah. <laughs> or he bust you. Yeah. <laughs> that never it, happened yeah. to us. No. <laughs> it's just a good thing we had multiple chances. Let's just say that. <laughs> Yeah, it's that's the biggest thing. I think you don't have a lot of time to range. You got to know that your two pins are in this kill zone, and you just got to focus on that golden triangle, that area you want to shoot, and, and it's going to be quick. It, it's yeah. not it's not a setup type situation like on most other species. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that completely. So you know, experiencing elk in a whole different light. What was what was probably one of the coolest things about the hunt for you? Was it all 15, 20, 30 bulls bugling at the same time? Or was it all of a sudden a 700-pound animal popping out of the brush right in front of us at five yards? Well, I mean, because well, they materialize out of nothing sometimes, you know? What was kind of one of the coolest things for you to experience? I'm going to have to sort of weasel out of this question and say... <laughs> Everyone was different and everyone was special. You know, I mean, the first one that come in, he come barreling over, you know, barreling over that hill, just bugling his head off. And y'all are hitting the ground and yeah, he's running out. I just out. hear our guy go, oh shit! <laughs> and he hits the ground! And you know, everybody's hitting the ground except me. I'm trying to knock a damn arrow and trying to kill the hell. You know, and then, you know, some of them <coughs> were sitting there calling. You think, you know, a 750-pound animal, you can hear them coming in. There was a couple of times it was like, oh, shit, there he is. <laughs> We're just you sitting know. there thinking, oh, nothing's going to come in. This is terrible. Elk, 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 right there, elk. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and then, of course, they never, they none of them read the script. I sent them an email. Yeah, I, I know. Mean, I put it in like six different languages, including <laughs> Spanish, and still nothing. None of them. You know. Their iPhone must not be working. Right. You know, they just, I mean, we had at least four of them walk straight in at us <laughs> to the 10-yard mark. Yep. I mean, you know, and, and, and that was a cool situation, you know, I mean... Yeah, when you can see them licking their lips and their nostrils flaring and yeah. the whites of their eyes, that's yeah. pretty intense. It's pretty cool. Yeah, so there was a lot of different special situations, you know. And then, of course, when that one morning it was cool and crisp and 
I would say when we got down in there, there was two herd bulls, one on each side of the hill or the mountain. And in between, there was a bunch of satellite bulls trying to figure out which fight he was going to pick. Right. And I don't know how many bulls were in there and how many cows were in there. <laughs> I mean, you can help me out here and make a guess, but, you know, there had to be 30 or 40 animals in that basin that morning. Animals, yeah. And then as far as bulls, I bet you there was probably more animals than that. But just pure bulls bugling, I bet you we heard 15 or 20 different bulls bugling. Yeah, so, you know, that was special. I mean, I think this New Mexico unit has a ton of bulls and elk in it. I mean, before I come down here, I called Mike Slinker because he had just hunted the week before. And he said, you're just going to be in them all day. And I don't think he had expen uh, ever experienced elk in that number. Yeah. And yeah. Mike's killed 43 elk in his career, he told me last week. And for him to say that he's never experienced that many elk all day long was had to be a cool experience. But see, I don't even know it's a cool experience because that's what I experienced. You don't have anything to compare it to. Yeah, I don't have nothing to compare it to. <laughs> so, you know, I, I sort of got a weasel on you on that deal. There's, there's a lot of cool moments, you yeah. know, for me on that. So what about what about some really little details that made things harder than it had to be? And one one that comes to mind, and it made me laugh when you said this. So we climb up the first, we park the truck, and we immediately start going uphill. Yeah. And we get there, and it was pretty cool that morning. Yeah. <laughs> and that afternoon, Randy tells me he's like. He's like, I sure am glad that nothing came in because my glasses were so fogged up I couldn't see a damn thing. So, <laughs> little things like that. What other little, little minute details like that did you, were you kind of like, son of a bitch, this is just, what, what the hell? <laughs> well, I think we got to go back to, I'm from Texas, I'm in the flatland. <laughs> so, when you're, when you're at sea level of 200 and I'm all of a sudden at 9,000, <laughs> and we take up we take off straight up the mountain there's two times I can't shoot when I'm breathing so damn hard that if I even tried to shoot <coughs> I'm not sure I could have the kill zone and then when I got so hot that I put my rangefinder up on to my glasses because I have to wear glasses that they automatically fogged up so I'm sitting here Lifting my hat, blowing at my glasses, trying to get the get the fog off of them. So, you know, you know, there was a couple times I want to just tell Ralph, okay, now once we get up here, I need a minute to get my breathing under control, and I need another minute longer because I'm dripping in sweat, even though it's 40 degrees, and. Uh, that my glass is going to get on focus. It's not going to do us no good to get up here if I can't make the shot. And, you know, those two little things that were probably the hardest. That and obviously time. you enjoyed that one my hardships. We, we came down this hill and uh, we got to the bottom of this bull going, all right at the top and he looks at me and he goes, 
that bastard's gonna have to come down here to me because if I hike all up there, I ain't gonna be able to hit the son of a bitch anyways. (laughs) (laughs) And and that was true. That mountain that he was on was pretty steep. Just steep. And, you know, I say that, and then you gotta egg it on a little bit more by saying elk don't usually come down. They usually go up. And I say... Really? Yeah. And then I was like, it's probably that big, like, 330 or 40 right. bull they said they saw. And then at that point, we could have no longer got through with that little bit of conversation, and you laughing at me, that that dude lets out a lip-curling bugle. You know, and I'm thinking, okay, everybody has told me that the deeper they sound, the bigger they are. <laughs> And I just looked at you and I said, shit. And <laughs> Here we off go. we go up the mountain. <laughs> oh. Unfortunately, it got dark on us. He, he was coming in and it got a little dark on us. And we had another little situation with that. But, you know, he, long story short, he wasn't as big bull as he sounded. So, Well, I think he was the smaller. I think the bigger one was still up. Because remember, as we been. kept walking, he bugled again. Yeah, that once yeah. we got back down to the bottom. So... So, yeah, I don't care how good a shape you try to get in when you're at sea level. It's definitely different when you get to uh, 9,000 feet in New Mexico. It's the same way. I have a lot of buddies, you know, from Georgia and Pennsylvania and things like that. They work out and they run and they jog and they do all this stuff. But when you come to Wyoming and you go from super low to my house is almost at 7,000 feet. Okay, my house. And... They get there, they walk up the steps, uh, uh, you know, it's, and you get out, you get a little more accl- acclimated, you know, I notice that. Yeah. If they're there for one or two days before the hunt starts, they're yeah. way better off. Yeah. I agree. Um, no, <laughs> and then another thing we learn, you learn when you walk around a tree, don't hang on it because the sucker will fall over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, the older I get, the more careful I am about where I place my feet when I'm stepping over logs and everything. Well, this situation he's talking about, (laughs) we're trying to walk quiet through the woods because we've done heard a bugle. And we're going through there and there's a log to step over. And there just so happened to be about a four inch tree standing right beside the log. So I've got my bow in one hand. I'm trying to be quiet. So I grabbed the tree to help me brace and go over quietly. But when I do, it was rotten at the roots and it started to fall. And I couldn't just let go of it and make all this noise. It's like a 15 foot tree, it's not. So I'm just gently setting it down as it falls and you and Jeff are just dying back there. You know, it's like, okay. But what do you do? You know, it's just one of them situations we all had a good laugh at it. It was a lot of fun. And And then directly, I don't know what. And then, so that was just before, then we saw that bull down the bottom. We tried to call him up. And you know, when you're crossing all these deadfalls, sometimes it may be easier to step on the deadfall and then step off the ground, obviously. But what you don't know is how rotten that deadfall might be. <laughs> yeah. Our guide steps over this tree, and here comes Randy. He puts two feet right on top of that tree. He stands up, and the whole thing breaks in half and gives away. 
and wood and splinters like explode everywhere. And I just was like, <gasps> I was holding my mouth so I wouldn't start laughing. Yeah. That's usually the stuff that happens to me. I mean, did you see me eat shit that time? Yeah, he did. <laughs> that was hilarious. But, you know, and that goes back into the. <laughs> now we're talking about all the fun we had in the woods. Oh, didn't we though? You know, and. <laughs> We can laugh for ourselves, and that's the best part about it, you know. We, yeah. We had a lot of fun doing it. It's just like when that when I'm holding that tree going down, and I look up, it's halfway down. It's about a 45-degree angle, and y'all are almost rolling on the, <laughs> on the wood floor there. You know, and then I asked you, I said, well, at least you got it on film, right? <laughs> well, obviously not, so we figured we were going to recreate that somewhere. But so we couldn't find another dead tree in the right spot to recreate that. <laughs> So, you know, that's just got to be locked in our memory bank there. So. Yep, yep. <laughs> Man, we had some fun though, didn't we? Yeah, we've had a blast. And obviously a, a good friendship's going to come out of this. And your son's going to get to kill some stuff in Texas. And maybe you guys my, are my boys to come are going to come to Wyoming yeah. and hunt a little different and, and yeah. learn. For sure, so. for sure. So, Randy, you know, one thing being from Texas... Um, we talked a little bit about you know the sea level and the elevation difference, everything like that. What are what are a few things that you do in order to better prepare physically? I mean, the elevation is always going to kick you; it's, yeah. it's always hard. But what are a few things that you do to prepare physically for for your hunts like this? Turn left to stay on US fifty four West. As we try to get to thank the you, Siri. All right. <laughs> well, the biggest deal I was I was I was in the gyms. I was. I was riding my bike, I was doing the treadmills, I was running outside, I was walking outside with weight on myself, and I was in the gym, and I was talking to a marathon runner. She said she had just got back from a marathon run from Colorado at 10,000 feet. Uh-huh. I said, bingo, how did you prepare for it? Yeah, winter, winter, chicken dinner. Right. <laughs> so... Being from Texas, everything's flat. All that situation. She said what she did because we don't have any hills or anything there. She run up and down parking garages. Huh. So I actually, for about a month, would walk or jog or put weight on my back up and down a five-level parking garage. It was only about a mile from the house. And then at the end, I would usually run the stairs straight up five stories and, and straight back down five. But running stairs is a little bit different than the mountains because the mountains are on a steady slope all the time. And I wanted my muscles, my calves, my thighs, my hamstrings, I wanted all that to experience that slight incline all the time on a consistent basis. Absolutely. So the parking garage... Does as that. funny as it sounds, no, it does. That. It was a great training deal because I had the stairs, I had the slight elevation and 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 uh, angle, consistent angle all the time, and that's where I felt like was the game changer for me from doing the stairmaster or doing the treadmills or doing my bike or or just walking on flat land with weight. Yeah, I got to. I was always going to the elevation. And that's steady elevation. That's something, you know, because I've had a few people ask me that exact same question. Well, what can I do? And I said, they're like, I've been on the stair stepper. And I tell them, 
the stair stepper is great for your quads. I said, but you're stepping on a level step every single right. time you step on the stair stepper. And I said, it's better to do something at an incline, such as the steepest incline that a treadmill can go on and just walk. Right. You don't have to walk super fast, but just walk and let your calves get used to being like, you know, at that, whatever it is, 15 degree angle, whatever a treadmill goes to, but they gotta get used to that angle because they're not stepping on flat every yeah. time. And that makes a big difference. Yeah. yeah, that was a game changer for me, I think, which, which helped a lot because bar the elevation and straight up a couple of times and getting my breath or getting my air back in me you know everything else I was fine with the physical aspect I was fine with it, yeah. was, it was an air situation at 9,000 feet for me at times but other than that I felt like I was pretty well prepared I mean you can always be better prepared I could have used another month of, of this or that or eating a little better you know dropping a few more pounds but it could have been a hell of a lot worse too you did pretty yeah, good yeah so you know it, it worked out really good for me i think as funny as it sounds parking garage was a neat deal um one thing uh i i want to talk a little bit about is, is you let me try your hex suit yeah you know and that is something that i've heard a bunch about um but I don't ever, I'm not for it. I haven't gone to any of the ATA shows or anything like that yet. I'm going to, but I haven't yet. So I've never got to see them and feel them and actually try them. And you gave me one to try. And just like I was telling you, you know, when, usually when you spook an elk, it's butts, butts and dust and they're gone. You know, there's no, hmm, I wonder what that is. Especially cows, they'll bark and they're gone. But I noticed with the hex suit that they didn't seem as scared. Are you telling me because of my inexperience, you got to experience them not running off by the pit? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, you know, they could they could look at us sometimes, and they could tell that's a really weird looking tree. I don't think it's a tree. But it wasn't a. I feel threatened, and I need to run to seven ridges over and get out of here forever. You know, it wasn't like that. It was. It was a lot different. They would kind of notice us and kind of trot off and then go back to milling around and almost eating and being an elk again, which anyone that knows, if an elk wins you, there's seven ridges over, especially in Wyoming, there's seven ridges over before you can formulate another plan. I mean, they're gone, gone. And if an elk sees you, a herd bull even, they'll regather his cows and he's gone, gone. But these ones, it was crazy. You know, they'd see us move, or, you know, a small twitch or take a few steps and they kind of look around. I, I can see something weird there, but it's like it's like we weren't as threatening. I guess it's the best way to put it. We weren't uh, as threatening. And that was that was interesting to me, for sure. Well, and I think uh, the, the best example is I think I probably killed that elk last night because of the hex suit. And reason being is he's walking straight in at me which that's not the important part here. When I drew, he saw me drew, but he and didn't run off. you didn't have off. anything behind you either. No, I mean, I, because, and the reason I didn't was because we were actually hunting a different bull. Yep. And when he left, the other one was coming in, and I was stuck standing right there. I couldn't move. <laughs> in the wide I mean, ass open. I'm in the wide open. <laughs> and, you know, he's... He's coming straight at me, and I think I can draw as his head goes behind that little tree, and obviously he's seen me, but he only jumped 
10 yards and turned around and looked. I thought, what, what's, what is that and thing? <laughs> at that situation, he was, that was his fatal mistake. Yep. You know, and that's all you need. With, Something that little. That without minute. the hex suit, I'm not sure that would have happened. It might have. It might not have. But, uh, and that's what I ask you whenever we was through last night. What did you see from your experience hunting elk? The difference in the hex suit, wearing it and not wearing it. And yours was, they were just calmer. Yeah, that's and what it seemed like to me. They didn't blow when you made a little mistake. And that's sometimes all we need as a hunter. We're going to make mistakes. Yeah. Now, obviously, you can't go up there and just do jumping jacks and wave your hands in front of him. <laughs> but well, you could if you wanted. <laughs> well, yeah. But, you know, when you do make a little mistake, a little error, or things weren't working up, it gives you that little bit more of forgiveness uh -huh. to maybe get it done. And yep. it, it worked for us this weekend. And uh, so, yeah, I'd encourage everybody to at least check out the Hex Suit, go to their website, and check them out or talk to someone that's used one before it's one of those things that it's almost hard to believe and understand until you've experienced it yeah uh, you know my son's 11 he, he killed four animals with the bow last year and I contributed a lot of it to the hex suits because they just they help I yeah. mean get away with a little bit you get away with a little bit more movement they're just not threatened at that that point you know yeah. you're just like a you're just like the tree or the bush or anything else in the woods because they can't feel the electricity and, and the sixth sense is what everybody wants to call it and uh, it's it's been a game changer for me <laughs> over the years especially with bear and turkey Everything 
all rolled up in one we'd we'd encountered the first two days. Yep. You know, I mean, it just did. I mean, I don't know how you can have all that happen in one deal, but it it, it did. It did. <laughs> you know, we had, like I said earlier, we had the bulls that didn't see what they wanted to. We had them checking the wind. We had them coming straight at us. We had them jumping away from us, and we had them almost walking over us, and it was just everything. I didn't. And unfortunately, or fortunately, I was standing in the wide open then. I didn't get to follow your practice of being in front of a tree, which at that point, the biggest tree was only about 14 inches wide, and that's the one the elk walked behind and was trying to hide behind, and I didn't even have the luxury of standing in front of that one. But, uh, yeah, it's it was sure enough a cool experience. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I think, uh, you know, just kind of a recap in the, in the whole whopping two days that we were there hunting, you know, we learned when the guide wanted us to move, when he didn't, when we should push harder forward, when we should go slow forward. You learn when to draw and how important that is. Learned about setting up in the shadow, setting up in front of the trees. You learned about thermals. You learned about using the 50-50 wind cut that he was talking about. Right, right. Um, learned about some of the different type of elk calls and cow calls, everything like that that he was utilizing. Uh, you, you know, you witnessed him raking and using uh, that strategy as well. And then all four of us learned how to come together as a team and make it happen. You know, and that's that's a lot of stuff to happen in two days. Well, that was a big deal too because we obviously had the man calling Ralph. I guess we learned hand signals too. That was yep, super important. We learned hand signals, and we had Ralph in there, and he had a packer in there with us in case we killed something. And then we had a hunter, and we had a cameraman. So. That's a pretty tough situation when you got four guys walking around the woods. <laughs> like a herd of elephants. You know, <laughs> and then I've got to mention one more time the 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 other less the other big lesson is you're not gonna have time to range and just be confident that both pins are in the kill zone. When you're back home practicing, know the distance between your twenty and your thirty yard pin and so you can be confident at that at that point. And I would even take it a step further. I would go to 30 yards, and I would shoot at the target with your 40-yard pin and see where it hits. Well, and Real, realize, you show yourself, yeah. realize that it's only going to be 8 to 10 inches different. You know, realize that it's not going to miss the whole damn target. And I'm going to have to go home and experiment with something that Ralph said. He said, don't worry about where he is. Put the 40-yard pin on the heart. You'll kill him. Mm -hmm. Well, I need to go see because I've only got a 27 and a half inch draw length and I was shooting a 455 grain arrow. I need to know the distance between my 20 and my 40 and know if it's in that kill zone. Yeah. Because, I mean, certain guys shoot different speeds. Absolutely. I mean, I like to stay about 280, which I'm never going to be at 280 with that situation. Mine's about 270 with the current setup. But you've got guys that are shooting a lot faster than me because they got longer draw lengths and some of them like to shoot the 290 and the, the 300 feet well that's a whole different deal for them than it is for me absolutely so you know i mean their drops not gonna be near what mine is and, and i think that's one reason i'm so 
had a, such a hard time adapting not being able to use my rangefinder. Uh-huh. Because my boat only does shoot 270, you know, yeah. or 265. And disclaimer, know. disclaimer. <laughs> yeah. Make sure that that if you shoot a slower speed, like, and I'm the same, I'm in the same boat, you know, yeah. I shoot a 440 or 450 grain arrow, and my draw length is, two, is 27, so right. it's even shorter, 26 and three quarters, yeah. you know, I mean, it's, it's even shorter, and disclaimer, disclaimer, make sure that your target is big enough, or, yeah. or aim, you know, if you're at 30 yards, aim towards the bottom of your target with right. your 40 yard pin, and see where it hits then, because right. we obviously don't want you busting your arrow, that sucks. You know, it sucks when you miss and you break an arrow. That's never fun. Um, but just do the homework on... It's important. ...on pin drop between 20 and 40 yards. And I think you'll be amazed. Yeah. I think you'll be amazed. Well, then it gives you confidence that you don't have to range even when things are happening real fast. But also, what, what you do is you stand back and drawbacks at 30 yards and you put your 40 right in the middle of that target and just look up and see where your 30 is and that's going to tell you where it's going to hit right there right you yeah, know exactly so so yeah well I, I appreciate i mean i know willie kind of lined me up and just stuck me in your truck with you and you never <laughs> met me before and here i showed right. up but um i had a blast hunting with you and and you're a real good guy you really are i, I had a lot of well, you know, you're doing it. You're hunting for the right reasons, and I and I appreciate that. I around it a lot, as you can imagine, and, and I appreciate that a lot. And I had a lot of fun, especially your never quit attitude. You know, uh, I mean, we were an elk every day, so that helps big time. Right. But some people, it doesn't matter. I mean, you get an elk and you blow a situation up, and you let a, that 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 situation affects them, and then everything else is shit from then on out. And you didn't do that. And that, that was a big deal. So I I do I, I appreciate getting the opportunity to meet you and hang out with you and I look forward to doing it some more for sure. Well I appreciate all the kind words and I'm humbled by them and uh, yeah I think I think after this situation we're going to be lifelong friends from here on out and maybe our kids will grow up and take over and continue the, the tradition. Yeah. You know and hunt together and, and uh, it's going to be good. Thank you for tuning in to the show. It means a lot to us. But seriously, though, I really appreciate your ear. And it would mean the world to me if you would rate our podcast. If you didn't like it, one star it. But if you did, a five is even better. Don't forget to comment, like, share, and hit that subscribe button. Thanks again for tuning into the show. Some other podcasts that you should definitely check out are... Eastman Elevated with Brian and Barney. And Hunt Harvest Health with Ryan and Hillary Lampers. And a special thanks to... Maven Optics, Six Sight Gear, Dark Energy Tech, Shield Mountain Outdoors, The Outdoor Insiders, Iron Mind Hunting, Valkyrie Archery, and Gannett Ridge Sporting Equipment.